I'm reminded afresh this morning how incredible that song is. Boy, rich, rich, wonderful, beautiful, biblical lyrics. As you settle in, let me ask you an important question. If today were your last day on earth, what would you do, who would you speak with, and what would you tell them? What would you do, who would you speak with, and what would you tell them? I was online a while back and was reading a post that listed some of the most famous last words ever spoken. I want to share a few of these with you. One was from Nostradamus from the 16th century. While lying on his deathbed, he said to his wife, Tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. Whatever predictions Nostradamus made in his life, we know that one was true because he didn't last the night. Novelist Jane Austen was asked by her sister Cassandra on her deathbed if there was anything she wanted, and she simply said, nothing but death. Those were her last words. Hollywood actor Humphrey Bogart, while lying on his deathbed, called his wife and children in for the last time to say their goodbyes and before he died he said I should have never switched from scotch to martinis famous last words something I discovered as I read through these from these well-known people who who were uh, trailblazers in their day something I found was that their last words were not all that profound Nothing, if anything, said was, was earth-shattering or life-changing. Many, many last statements there were, were sad when you, when you think about them. What about you? If you knew this was your last day on earth, what would you do? Who would you speak with? And what would you tell them? If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24. We are continuing our, our sermon series for, for Easter entitled Luke's Easter Story. And this morning we're going to be discussing, and next week we're going to be discussing the, the last events of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're going to talk about some of his last words to his disciples. And then next week on Resurrection Sunday, we are going to be looking at Jesus' ascension and what we learn from that account. But let's look this morning at Jesus' final words to his disciples. And these are not the final words of a dying man, but of the risen Savior during his earthly ministry. He's speaking with his disciples during his post-resurrection ministry, after his resurrection, before his ascension, and he says several significant things to them that I want us to look at this morning. Notice first, he says to his disciples, point number one, he, he speaks a merciful and gracious message to them. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things. Now let's pause for a minute and let's think about what they were talking about. Where are we in the story? Think about what's just taken place. We talked about this last week. Two men are on the road from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. 
And while they're on the road, they're talking to one another, and Jesus joins them, but they don't know it's Jesus. He is supernaturally hid from them, and he asks, what are you talking about? And, and they're saddened, but they're also shocked. How do you not know what's been going on? So they recap for him, probably telling about Jesus' death and, and certainly about the empty tomb. And they also reveal to them their, their doubts. They believe Jesus is, is still dead. And they even say, we, we had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, the one come to redeem Israel. But they have their doubts. And Jesus rebukes them and their doubts about him, reminding them of what the scriptures say of him. He takes them through the Old Testament and he shares with them what the scriptures say about him. He shares with them that it's necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things for their redemption. And, and they invite Jesus into their home. They still don't know it's Jesus yet. And they have him break bread at dinner and we're told that they... Jesus is revealed to them in the breaking of the bread and then he vanishes. He disappears and these men then go and, and find the 11 and others with them. They go and they tell them of Jesus' resurrection. Let's rewind a little bit. Let's look at this. Luke 24, beginning in verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Imagine that. While they're in mid-speech, he appears before them, what do you think he's going to say? Don't look ahead, don't cheat, all right? Let me remind you of what happened. They had betrayed him, they denied him, they abandoned him, they doubted him. What is his words, what are his words to them going to be? There might have been some hearing the story of Jesus' resurrection and thinking, oh, how I want to see him, but I'm a little afraid of what he might say to me. Think about what they had done. When I was in high school, a little confession time, it's before Jesus, me and a few of my friends decided to skip school one day. We thought we had it all planned out. But one of my friends had forgotten his lunch at home. So his dad, who was the judge in town, brought his lunch to the school. And they said, well, we'll see what room he's in so we can get it to him. Oh, he's not here today. I said, oh, really? What about so-and-so? He's not here either. What about Graham? Graham's not here. That was before cell phones. And the point, by the way, if there are any kids in here, is your parents always find out, all right? So that's the lesson for you guys. But there weren't cell phones back then, so we didn't know our parents knew. We had a lot of fun that day and uh, got back for track practice at the end of the day. We didn't want to miss that. And we, I was in the locker room, and one of my friends came up to me and said, man, did you get it? You know, he's asking me the question. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, your, your parents came up here looking for you. Never in my life had I wanted a day of school to continue on and continue on. I didn't want to face my parents for fear 
of what they might say and do to me. And I'll, I'll spare you the gory details, but I'll tell you, it wasn't what Jesus says here, okay? <laughs> I got law on that day, not grace. I got some justice, yeah. What's Jesus going to say? As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, you dirty, rotten, low-down, no-good, disloyal, unbelieving. Is that what he says? No, he says, peace to you. Jesus appears before these fumbling, bumbling, stumbling, faithless disciples and says, peace, peace to you. Jesus speaks peace to sinners amen boy that's that's worth an amen we deserve judgment jesus gives us peace peace to sinners the best news in the world he is a merciful and gracious Savior. He, he came to make peace between God and man through his life and death and resurrection. And while he is accomplishing that great work, his disciples abandon him. They doubt him. They deny him. And after re the resurrection appears, they, they, they still question. But then he appears before them and he speaks peace to them. Here's the application, believers. If Jesus can do that for them and for us, how much more so should we do that for others? I've said this in the past, but those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. That's the application. It's made over and over again. Jesus made this point again and again and again in his word. Those who have been forgiven much should forgive much. If you're here, you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. You have been forgiven much. You have been shown an infinite amount of grace that you could never possibly repay. Your response should be to respond in the same way, to go out and do likewise to extend grace, to give forgiveness when forgiveness is sought. That's point number one. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus speaks a merciful and gracious message to his disciples. Notice what else he does. He also condescends to them to communicate his gospel message with them. Look at verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. But he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them so jesus appears before these fumbling bumbling stumbling faithless disciples and instead of condemning them he speaks peace to them but they still have doubts that they, they are startled they're they're afraid they say it's a ghost they're questioning what they're seeing luke says they thought they saw a spirit 
Jesus at this point doesn't say you guys are never going to get it and just cuts out on them. Instead, he condescends down to them and he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? And then he shows them his wounds of crucifixion and calls for them to touch and see. Man, we give Thomas a hard time. He's the one with the nickname, right? But notice they all had to be shown evidence of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. They were all invited to look and see and to behold and to touch and feel. He says, a, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as I have. I'm as real as you. Come and see for yourself. And he showed them his hands and his feet. While he did this, we're told they still have a difficult time believing. They, they marveled, but they still struggle with disbelief. They disbelieved for joy, meaning this has got to be too good to be true. That's what they were thinking. Then Jesus eats before them, demonstrating to them that he's alive just like them. He does all of this to help them with their unbelief. He doesn't have to go to these great lengths for them, but he chooses to because he is a merciful and loving and gracious Savior. And aren't you glad that he is? Who in here struggles with doubt? Just me? No, we all do, right? At one time or another, to, to one degree or another. Did you know that you can go to the Lord with your doubts and pray for him to help you with your unbelief? You can turn your attention to his word. You can read about men and women who struggle with this as well. You can see how God condescended down to those doubters in the person of Jesus and even appealed to their senses to open their minds to the truth of Jesus' person and work. And we have their testimony here in this book. We can hear from those here those who saw Jesus with their own eyes, spent time with him, ate with him, heard from him, embraced him, and even saw him return to the Father's right hand on high. We'll look at that next week. What are we to do? Where are we to go when we struggle with doubt? We are to seek the Lord for help, turn to his word for assurance, come to this place with God's people. Preach the gospel to one another, right? Encourage one another with these words. If you're struggling with doubt, this is where you're to go and what you're to do. You're going to be challenged to do that this week in your study guide. Be sure and, and take time to do that. Notice what else Jesus does. Number three, he opens his disciples' minds to understand Scripture. Look at verses 44 through 46. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Underline that. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So notice Jesus does the same thing for his disciples that he did for the men on the road to Emmaus that the angels did for the women at the empty tomb. 
The men on the road to Emmaus are skeptical. The women at the empty tomb, even though though they see the tomb is empty, they have an encounter with angels, they they are puzzled over this. And the disciples, they have their doubts as well. So Jesus turns their attention to the scriptures and to the words he spoke to them while he was with them. He basically said, if you understood the words of scripture and believed them, if you truly understood my words that I spoke to you while I was with you and believed them, then you would not be filled with doubt and be skeptical. What you're witnessing and me being here with you is the fulfillment of the promises God made to you all throughout his word. All of his word is about me. From the law of Moses to the prophets to the Psalms, God's people were promised from the beginning a Messiah to come. On the heels of the fall comes the hope of Christ, the promise of one who is going to come and crush the enemy and bless the nations, redeeming them through his death and resurrection. And Jesus is saying here, you are witnessing this being fulfilled today. And then we're told Jesus opened their minds to understand scripture. Folks, for us to believe God's gospel, God must do this work. He must open our eyes to the truth of it. He must bring understanding to our minds and belief to our hearts. Salvation is a work that God does, period, end of sentence. In Deuteronomy 29, 2, Moses told unbelieving Israel, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. In other words, they witnessed the great miracles of the Lord, but did not believe it. Moses says it is the Lord who gives the heart understanding. He brings understanding to the heart. He gives sight to blind eyes, spiritually blind eyes. And he allows those spiritually deaf to hear It doesn't matter what one witnesses, what miracles one witnesses. Israel walked through the sea on dry land, and many failed to enter God's rest. Men and women witnessed the risen Christ, but still doubted. They needed God to bring understanding to their minds and beliefs to their heart. Now listen, while I say that, the other end of the coin is God is sovereign in salvation clearly seen in scripture and man is responsible some of you are like well how does that work what's well, a mystery it doesn't go against reason we're talking about two separate things here it's not contradictory but it goes beyond our reasoning when charles spurgeon was asked how do you how do you reconcile god's sovereignty and man's responsibility he said i wouldn't try i don't reconcile friends J.I. Packer, in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, makes it very clear that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, these two doctrines, they're not at odds with one another, but they're married. God has set it up in such a way that when man trusts in Christ alone for salvation, God deserves all the glory and the honor and the praise for that. And when man rejects Christ, he deserves all the blame. That's the way it works. 
God brings understanding to minds and belief to hearts. Praise be to God. He still works in this way today. Think of the most hardened sinner you know and pray for him and know that God can change the hardest of hearts. He changed this hard heart, captured this heart, changed me from the inside out, and believer, he did the same for you. What he calls for us to do is make this message known. But he is the one who changes hearts and minds. Pray that he would work in this way today and you simply be faithful to share that message in boldness, knowing who does the work on the inside. Notice Jesus reminds his disciples of his word he shared with them when he was with them. Same words the angels shared with the women at the empty tomb. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And in Luke 9, 22, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is just reiterating this message that he gave to them while he was with them so that they would believe on him and trust in him and have life through him. And folks, he wants the same for you. He has given us this message. He has given you this message so that you would believe on Christ and trust in him and have life through him. Do you believe in the risen Christ? Is your trust in him alone for salvation? Do you have life in his name? If not, I pray today that God would bring understanding to your minds and belief to your hearts. So Jesus opens his disciples' minds to understand what Scripture teaches on his person and work. He gives them a heart to believe it. Last point, he also commissions them to be his witnesses to the nations. When sharing the Great Commission, pastors often go to Matthew 28 or Acts 1, but here we have it as well in Luke chapter 24. Look at it, beginning in verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, so here, Christ gives his great commission. This passage reads a lot like Acts 1, which makes sense because Luke wrote Acts 1. He repeats to Theophilus in Acts 1 what he says here at the end of Luke chapter 24. First, he gives them their marching orders. Notice, notice Christ, first he proclaims to them what has already happened, right? And then he tells them what needs to happen in light of what's happened. So he explains to them what's happened, and he shows them what happened. And then he explains to them what needs to happen in light of what has happened. In verse 46, we're told that Christ suffered and on the third day rose from the dead. This is what has happened. And, and then he explains to them what needs to come. He says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. First, they, they had to witness and believe on the risen Christ. Right? That's what's taking place in this story. 
They will not proclaim these things if they've not witnessed them, believed on them, and been changed by these truths. So Jesus appears to them. He brings understanding to their minds, belief to their hearts, and then he commissions them to go and be his witnesses, same as he does in Acts chapter 1. But first, he calls for them to wait, same as he does in Acts chapter 1. What are they to wait on? Power from on high by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They had to wait on the promise of the Father. They had to wait on for, for power from on high by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the few times in Scripture where God's people are told to wait. Oftentimes, they're told to come, follow me, or go, make disciples. They're called to come, they're called to go. Here they're called to wait. Why? Because they cannot do the work that God has called for them to do without God. They need Him. We need Him. We need the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit to be who God has called for us to be in Jesus and to do what He has commissioned us to do through Jesus. We need Him. Every spiritual victory personally and in ministry is because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. He is the one to be praised. God is the one to be, to be praised for where we are spiritually and for any and every victory we have experienced in the Christian life. The Spirit of God is the power behind the mission of God. That's why the Spirit of God is mentioned over 60 times in the book of Acts. He's the power behind the mission. Many have argued that, that Jesus took a risk by leaving this work in the hands of this ragtag group of disciples. What do you think? Did he take a risk? Many believe that. At first glance at this text, it appears as if he might have because in verses 47 through 49, he gives them this commission. And then in verses 50 through 53, he leaves them. But as you carefully study this text and others like it, what you find is Jesus' confidence is not in the men he leaves behind, but in the spirit he sends to them. Which is why he tells for them to wait. He knows they're in need of the empowering of the Holy Spirit to be able to do the work that he has called for them to do, to be his witnesses, to make him known where he is not known. And the problem with us oftentimes is we fail to see our need for, for this great work. We fail to see that our weakness is really our greatest strength because He is made strong through our weakness. We fail to see our need of Him, cry out to Him, start our day on our knees before Him in need of Him. That's where true strength is found in our dependence upon God to work in and through our heart and life and in, a, in and through us in ministry through His Holy Spirit. If it were left to us alone, God's mission would be in jeopardy. It would. We would be sunk if we were left to ourselves. 
We are in need of divine power, and we have that in the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, man, God could never use me. How could he use me? What could he do with me? I'm not a very good speaker. I don't have much of an education. I'm not what you would call a leader. How could God use me? Listen, I know this to be true according to Scripture. If you're thinking along these lines, you are the exact person that God delights in using. And if, you're, if your mentality is, here I am, God, to your rescue. Mission's no longer in jeopardy. You're in trouble. The truth of the matter is, without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, none of us would be worth anything in ministry. None of us would have anything to offer. It's, it's through His work. It's His work in and through us that makes all the difference, which is why Jesus tells them to wait on Him. And when the Spirit of God comes as promised, just read the book of Acts. The disciples go out in boldness. His followers go out in boldness. And they fill Jerusalem with the teaching of the gospel. That's what they were arrested for. That's what they were put on trial for. You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. And then the gospel goes out from there. And the world is never the same because of it. Because of the work he does in and through his faithful and this calling that was placed on the disciples by christ it extends to us today this is what we have been called to do if you have been saved you have been indwelt with the spirit of god and have access to this power and you have been called to go in the power of god's spirit to take this message first where to jerusalem not literally but but to your to your household to your co-workers friends family to those god has given you an audience with to those you have influence with and don't you dare go and do it somewhere else if you're not doing it at home it starts in the home it's the reason why god has given you that much access to your kids and your wife and husband to be doing it in the home and then go out from there the disciples go first to Jerusalem. That's proof of God's mercy and grace right there, right? While those in the city were the ones who rejected and killed God's Messiah, God sent his disciples to them first, and then, as Paul says in Romans 1, to the Gentiles. This is what God has called for us to do, believers. This is what God has called for me to do. I've been called to make this message known to make it known that while we are sinners condemned unclean deserving of god's judgment god sent his son to save us by god and for god and from god to restore us to a right relationship with him through repentance and faith in christ if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in christ alone for your salvation i pray today that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand that you are a sinner in desperate need of rescue you're in need of salvation and that you would know and believe that Christ came to be that very rescuer he came to be that savior he came to rescue us he came he lived he died and rose again so that we 
through faith alone in him alone to be forgiven of sin and rescued from judgment and restored to a right relationship with the living God. If you're here and you are not trusting in him alone for salvation, I pray that you would bow the knee to King Jesus today. Make him your Lord and be saved. Let's pray together.